It's Wednesday, September 14, 2022, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the studio in the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and I'm here with my colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, a change in the way the Columbia Public School Board hears public comment. We've also got more on a story we told you about last week. There are now murder charges in the death of the Las Vegas Review Journal reporter. And those charges are against the government official that uh, Jeff German was reporting on. We're going to update you on that. And... The number one challenge is not just to tell you what and why things happen here, but to explain what developments mean to you. That from Bernard Shaw's first newscast on CNN when the network launched. He died last week at the age of 82. There's a lot more that hopefully we'll talk about before our half hour is up today, but we're going to start This with is BBC this. News from London. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. That was the moment we knew on Thursday when the BBC made that very heavily scripted announcement that was very clearly laid out in Operation London Bridge. One of our uh, colleagues put together what I called a ripped from the headlines lesson plan for yesterday to talk to students about the importance of crisis communication and having a plan around it. This was most definitely that case study to be used in the moment's notice about having the message, managing the message, and staying on the message. And on, and on, and on. <laughs> <laughs> I, heard, I got a, um, a, a news alert today from CBS, and the headline was, Britain mourns the queen. And I thought, really? Still? Again? Yet? Yes. They... they this is your classic crisis communication in the sense that they are on message and on. <laughs> well, I mean, they're following, they're following yeah. the plan. I mean, and this is yeah. something that's been in the works. Decades. For decades, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, I think it, at least from some of the things that I've been reading that it really went into high gear after uh, Prince Philip passed away. Uh, and and they, they, you know, because this happens to just ordinary people when a spouse passes away, the, the, others, the, the other spouse. And the queen sort of, was 96, yeah. <clears throat> absolutely. And she was elderly herself, you know, generally it happens. So, uh, and they're following the script. I mean, they are, they are literally following it to the letter, to the time. I mean, even today with her, you know, with the, the uh, her, her body being, being brought back to London and, and then being brought back to Westminster, you could just see the pomp and circumstance. Everybody is doing what they're supposed to do. Everybody's falling in line. Even Harry and, and, uh, and, Megan. and, and Megan are falling mm-hmm. in line. So, you know, there you go. So let's talk for a minute about the BBC's role in this. How is it different than private media in the UK? Well, for one thing, you see that the the BBC anchor had his black tie, his black jacket. Everything was ready. Um, they are the uh, they are funded by the government, uh, funded by the taxpayers, let's say, uh, of Britain, and so they have a quasi official role. Um, and uh, they clearly felt some of the uh, stories you posted on the Links blog, Amy, show that. Uh, they feel more scrutinized uh, than other parts of the media. Uh, so they are, and they are the channel uh, that both literally a channel and uh, the more figurative channel that the uh, that the government chose 
to make this announcement. And so they, they have an official capacity. They're trying to give the official news. Uh, but I think the BBC is also... Um, it's about as close to state TV and a democracy as you can get. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, although they prize their independence right, and right, right. Uh, you know, and they sometimes get in trouble for it. But it's an interesting situation yeah. that they're in, yeah. There's a piece on our Lynx blog from The Guardian that said that there were surprisingly few complaints about the coverage. And, and Kathy, you're smiling because my first thought was, well, we get complaints all the time. And I guess it would be a good thing if we had surprisingly few. Who knows? But... The BBC, because of that public taxpayer role, there, there's a different level of accountability. Well, I also think that there was a, there's a certain level of expectation from the BBC by the by the public because they get a different level of access. A uh -huh. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So they, you know, the, there were certain things that the public wants to see. That, I mean, I, I think especially in in, in Great Britain. Uh, they they expected to see exactly what they're seeing and they're getting that from the BBC. Where you're seeing some differences is what's happening in the rest of the Commonwealth, shall we say, uh, where you have Sky Sky News, which oh, we're is reporting talk about Sky News next, which is reporting about <laughs> talk you know, about what happened with Sky News because well, they had quite the blunder in the middle of all of this. Well, yeah, they, I mean they had the blunder in the middle of this. The other, and I'll, I'll have you go yeah. through the blunder. But the, the other thing that really really jumped out at me with Sky News is that they've they've been the one place along with the Guardian and others that have been reporting on the conversations about various. Uh, countries that are part of the Commonwealth wanting to go republic now that the Queen is gone and they're saying okay here's our opportunity to break away from the Empire uh, that's been the interesting part of it but you don't see that much of that on the BBC Sky News The Guardian and others they're on it go ahead no, I think that's, um, you know, I haven't watched Wall to Wall. I have to say that my biggest problem with this coverage is the endlessness of it. And, um, and <laughs> I, I realize that. I'm right there with right, you. I, and it's going to, and frankly, oh, it's as not I was gonna getting. going to be over for at least another week. Well, uh, and as I was getting ready for today's program, sitting in my office with the door open, I heard Travis McMillan, our director, having a conversation with Kyle Felling, who's our audio engineer. And they were talking about live coverage on Thursday and feeds NPR is making available. And Travis is question to Kyle was what kind of radio is that like how do you just how do you do a funeral on the radio and what are you supposed to BBC do BBC is going to show you how to do it <laughs> <laughs> well and I think the thing that keeps running through my head is the title of the great Neil Postman essay amusing ourselves to death mm. I mean you really think about why why would the government of Britain the, the, when we want to say the monarchy of Britain, have these elaborate plans for this funeral that goes on for days and days and days. It's because it's a public spectacle that they are hoping will help build support for the monarchy and against exactly what you're talking about, right. Ernest, which is the idea that people would break away. Now, think about how much money and media resources are being tied up covering this and think about other things that could be covered with that same amount of money. Yeah, you still got a war going on in Ukraine. You know, I'm just saying, you know, and and that's that's one thing. I mean, you've got all sorts of other things that are going on in the world, but a lot of the a lot of resources. Our economy hasn't had a good week. The economy hasn't had a good week. A lot of resources yeah. that are being devoted to this, but mm -hmm. it also could be one of those, I think, part of it too is that uh, if the if the, the, the British government and the British people 
are focused on this. They're not focusing on the fact that their economy is as everyone else is, and they're really struggling, uh, that energy prices are high, that they've had massive strikes all over the country, uh, going all the way back to the spring. All of those stories go to the back burner because this is taking place. Right. And I'm not saying that, you know, th- th- this wouldn't have happened one way or the other, but that that is that's where it, we are right now. It's a little bit of shiny thing syndrome. Oh, yeah. That, that idea of, of, yes. of look at this, don't look at that. And I am trying to remember, this may have been, frankly, well, I was up in the middle of the night watching TV that I saw some interviews with citizens in London who were just kind of walking around and looking at things and they weren't necessarily enthralled with all of this, that they saw a tremendous amount of waste and said, you know, the only thing the royal family is good for for us right now is tourism. And, and yeah, we well, need the tourism money, but otherwise this is just all a substantial waste. Well, and I think from the media standpoint, and, and there are U.S. companies that are also spending enormous amounts of money to have big teams in London to cover this. And honestly, if you listen to it, it's just... It's just so boring. I mean, all of these people are trying to fill time. time. Well, and now, what is what is King Charles wearing, and what is Prince Andrew wearing, and what you know? And it's just filler, filler, filler instead of any actual news. I feel sorry for the people who are on the air because there's not much to talk about after you. Yeah, it's so pre it's so pre programmed by by the monarchy that uh, you know the only information you're going to get is what they want you to know, and, mm-hmm. and they're. Again, managing that message. And they're managing that message very well. And I, you know, I have to say, I was in New York at a conference uh, last week, and I was there over the weekend. And um, obviously, when I would turn on the TV in the hotel, I would see Royals, Royals, Royals. But on the, and I don't mean Kansas City Royals, but but on Sunday, it was the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And of course, in New York, uh, that is still a big deal. And they had uh, they interrupted the royals cover- coverage for wall to wall coverage of that ceremony, and it was beautifully produced. And I thought to myself, those are our royals, the people who were just going to work that day, right. and then the ordinary people who came up to the podiums and read the names and then said something about their loved ones whose name they were reading. It was really touching, and uh, and it was really a study in contrast. Yeah. Okay, so Thursday, it, um, almost overlooked by news of the Queen's death, we learned that last Wednesday night, Bernard Shaw died. He was CNN's first anchor, taking the helm when the cable news network went on the air in 1980. I played a clip from that first newscast at the top of the program. He was on the air at CNN for 20 years, helping establish that network and uh, building it as a force in global journalism. His influence on our profession has been profound, and and his challenge for us has always been to do better. Take a listen to this from about 11 years ago. Diversity. Diversity is not racial, ethnic, or gender encroachment. Diversity is our national survival. Those words couldn't have rung any truer today than they did in 2011 or 2001, 1991. Talk for a minute about the legacy of Bernard Shaw. Well, I mean, I think uh, Bernie's, as he liked to be called. uh, We we weren't on a first name basis. (laughs) Uh, You know, 
I think his legacy yeah. is that uh, number one, he was one of the first pioneers in cable news when cable news was news, mm-hmm. and throughout his career, uh, he maintained that sort of. Uh, down the middle, if you could want to call it that, kind of news that CNN uh, was famous for in, in its inception. Uh, the other thing is that he brought voices into uh, that news ecospace that hadn't been heard before. Uh, not only his voice, but the voices of others. He was he was a good mentor to a lot of young journalists. I mean, when you talk about diversity, that was one of the things that he really pushed for at CNN was to have the kind of ethnic and racial and and gender diversity that you need to have in a news organization. So it wasn't just about the, the, the way in which he covered stories or uh, the fact that he was there himself. It was that he was bringing others into it as well. Yeah, speaking of royalty, I mean, he was... Uh just enormously respected in the business. Uh, When he died, uh, all my social media feeds blew up with people who had known him and uh, one story after another about uh, kindnesses he had done for people, uh, you know, what you said, Ernest, the the mentoring. And I think, you know, the other thing about uh, his role, because he was a trailblazer, um, the fact that he was willing to speak up Uh, This is something I talk to students about a lot, um, because any of us who have ever been the only one of in the room knows how lonely that can feel. And sometimes it's easier to just knuckle under and say, oh, I got, they let me in the club, you know, I better not upset anybody. Um, But he was willing to speak up so that people behind him could get an entree. And I think that is the reason he's so well respected in our business. Yeah, I mean, when you think about all the big stories, I mean, you know, the well, I was years old yeah. <laughs> during Desert Storm. Right, and, right. and that is still one of the primary memories I have as a young person and as a news consumer was watching him doing those phoners with the screen of the map and where he was in Baghdad. And, right, right. And hearing what was happening in that moment in, in in that conflict and him never losing his cool never right. once right and and I mean to me when you go back when, when I go back in my mind and yeah. I've act, and, and listen to it it's almost like listening to Edward R. Murrow during the during the London Blitz that's a great you comparison uh, yeah I mean it was all you all you could do was hear what was happening in the background and him describing what was going on because there was no pictures to actually mm-hmm. see except for this sort of grainy pictures of things going up in the night but you couldn't couldn't tell what was going on but he gave vivid description of what he could see and what he knew from being on the ground and and i think about his coverage and then you know in the hours and the days later of the scud stud right that there was still so much grace and and so much gravitas gravitas thank you for helping me with the word there that that was present in his coverage that brought the context too right Oh, we're going to miss him. Um, what our audience probably doesn't know if they were listening to our program last week was that right before we sat down to record it, the three of us were huddled around a printout of a story from the Las Vegas Review Journal with the update that came in on the investigation into the death of reporter Jeff German. That 
one of the politicians that he had been reporting on had had his home search that morning and was named as a person of interest. Well, Robert Tellis has been charged with German's murder, and this clip comes from a news conference after Tellis's arrest. Everyone, I think, is united in our community, from the media to the police to the public, to try to solve this crime as quickly as possible. The staff at the Las Vegas Review-Journal has not let up on any of their reporting in this case, and that's something that, that really can't be easy to do, is they're both mourning one of their friends and colleagues, but also still providing that accountable watchdog journalism. I mean, to me, I think this is their way of, of showing that to, to, to him and his family mm -hmm. that, that they care. We're not going to let this story go. This is probably a part of their mourning process. They, their way of, of dealing with this and working through this is to say, you know, we're going to follow this story till the end. And it may not just be the public official who was arrested. There may be others that are involved in this as well, and they need to be brought to justice as well. So, I mean, I think that's a part of what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, sadly, we have precedent for this. You think about recent precedent when you think about uh, the Capitol, uh, pa the paper in Annapolis that was um, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, the Capitol site of the yeah. yes was the site of the uh, thank you the uh -huh. the site of the um, mass murder, right. and uh, and there the journalists had to keep working too. But I do think, Ernest, you're right. It's cathartic. It's one of the things um, I I do talk to our students about is in the middle of a crisis. Uh, in a way, our journalism is a wonderful thing for us to have because it's something for us to focus on and we feel that we can make a contribution and do something. And I, I'm sure those reporters feel that. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a terrible thing and to miss a, a, a friend uh, from the newsroom. There's a lot of camaraderie in newsrooms, but I think uh, one way that they will have of dealing with this, we saw this, uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, uh, when Don Bowles, the reporter in Arizona, was killed uh, also by somebody he was reporting on. Uh, the investigative reporters and editors flooded the zone and went down there. So I think I think you're seeing more and more of this. That the uh, sadly <laughs> there's a need for it. That um, that reporters are saying, you you will call down the hounds of hell upon you if you touch one of ours. And sadly, that's what it's going to take. I mean, I also find it interesting that the that other politicians in Las Vegas and in Nevada have basically said, wait a minute, this is a this is definitely a step way too far. And and if convicted that 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 he should serve the maximum. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so maybe this sends a message that hopefully will last for a lot, you know, a long time that, you know, the journalism journalism and journalists are gonna do their jobs and that's fine. And and as politicians they may not like it. But that's part of the deal that you struck when you decided to go into public office, is that you're going to be scrutinized and the things that you do are going to be scrutinized because what you're doing is for, supposedly for the public. And journalists are there to be able to record that and present that to audiences. And I think that's a really important norm to observe in a democracy. And those traditionally are the norms we have observed, but you're starting to see that fray, and that is what is so scary right now. Um, and it's, you know, what makes our society 
different and great is the rule of law. And in this is descending into just thuggery, you know, this is like the mafia. We're going to come and get you. So it's it's a very frightening time. So I think it's really important for everybody involved to kind of stand up and, and reestablish what those norms are. Right. So a week ago, this was a local crime story that developed into a little bit of a political drama. Um, as the story has also unfolded and has kind of become national, that narrative has also changed a little bit. And and it's not so much about the nuts and bolts of what happened in Las Vegas, but it's also about, and you're talking about the threat to journalists and to, um, to, to journalism in democracy in that sense. And there's another very interesting piece on our links blog, some things that NPR has looked at in terms of the threat to journalists being very real and that it is becoming increasingly harder to do the job every day because of those threats. But the threats going to this level and being carried out is really rare. In the United States, it's rare. Yes. In other countries, I mean, look to the South, look at Mexico. I mean, you have more, uh, if I if I have my stats right, you have more journalists who are murdered and, and you know, assaulted yeah. uh, in Mexico than any other country in the world. Mexico's the most dangerous yeah. place to be right. a journalist outside of a war zone. Right, right. So, I mean, and, and, and you can't tell me that a lot of what's happening there uh, is not going to drift over into to the United States, in particular when you have the kind of rhetoric that we've seen over the course of the last six years uh, coming from government officials, even government officials at the top. Uh, and and then you see what's happening on social media and the continued polarization. I mean, here we are having a conversation, and we've had this conversation for a while now about what, is the, what does it mean to be, a demo, to be a democratic country? What does democracy mean? And now we're challenging the definition of democracy that we've sort of tried to uphold for a long time, and now that even that comes into question. I mean, again... Uh, Journalists being called enemies of the state, this sort of thing can lead to this. I mean, you see what happens in Mexico. And, yeah, I and mean, you I see think, some of that here. you know, for a lot of p political figures who use this rhetoric, it's kind of a shtick. You know, it's like, oh, well, them and, you know. But the problem is the people who think they're hearing messages through their tooth fillings then feel greenlit and, you know, they act on that kind of rhetoric. And, uh, and so I think, you know, I was at this, this conference that I attended over the weekend. Uh, there were a lot of journalists from all over the world, and we heard the same thing we've heard before, which is when politicians in the United States start attacking journalists and start running down the free press then dictators in other countries feel free to start putting them in jail and killing them. And so it is so important how we behave here and how we talk here because that has an impact globally. Okay, well, I have a quick update that I want to share about a story that we talked about a few months ago. The law that's supposed to go into effect that prohibits people from recording Arizona police from less than eight feet away, 
Well, a federal judge has halted enforcement of that law for now and is giving any government agency that wants to defend it an opportunity to step forward and do so. They have exactly a week to do that. U.S. District Court Judge John Tucci determined the media groups fighting the bill signed back in July are likely to succeed in that fight based on the merits of their case alone indicating that the law represents a content-based restriction on speech that fails strict scrutiny. So maybe next week we'll have another update on this one as well. Which brings us to a development here in Columbia with a change to the public comment policy passed at Monday night's school board meeting. It's a policy that was met with pretty strong opposition by members of the public who did comment at that meeting. Kathy, describe the changes to the policies. Well, I'm, I'm going to hope I get this right because okay. it was it's a, nuanced. one of the it's yes. nuanced. And also one of the things that came up at the meeting was there were last minute amendments. Mm -hmm. And uh, but the bottom line is uh, this is going to reduce the amount of time the public has to comment at these meetings, uh, and it will limit uh, how much time each individual has to speak. It will limit how many times consecutively you can speak at these meetings. In consecutive months. In, in, yes, that's what I'm so trying to say. So you have to take a time you. out if you, yes. if you speak at too many meetings in a row. Well put uh, for a school <laughs> situation. And, um, and then uh, it limits the overall amount of time for public comments to 30 minutes per meeting. So it's a big change. I, I think... Um, um, uh, people are used to being able to talk on and on. But I think this is one of those things where it's really um, a balancing act. And I suspect that some of this is a reaction to uh, what we saw both here and, and across the country in school boards uh, with things getting out of hand over the mask policy. So, uh, you know, I think there are ways that people can, can comment, but clearly the school board has decided we need to get home at a decent hour. Yeah, I think that's what I think that's one of the reasons why is the fact that the meetings were going on and on. I also think that you had people who uh, would show up at school board meetings and were basically talking about things that weren't on the agenda, issues that they had, concerns that they had about what was going on in the schools. And that's not to say that that they they shouldn't be allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, what tends to happen is that. Uh, they come in with something that's going on in the community that may not even have anything to do with schools, and then they bring it into uh, school, into the school board, and then all of a sudden you have school board officials and, and administrators running around trying to figure out, okay, how do we deal with this with, with this issue? I think that's part of it, but I do think uh, a huge part of it is not to have these meetings drag on until 2 and 3 a.m., well, so one of the things I was not aware of until this comment policy was first proposed and discussed is that in the state of Missouri, boards and commissions and councils that hold public meetings, they don't have to take public comment in those meetings. It's actually a courtesy that is offered to constituencies. Um, my first thought was, well, yeah, but perhaps a lot of the people who are coming and doing those things that you're describing, Ernest, want to have a way to have it entered into the public record. Um, what are some other ways, especially because we talked about this too last week about comments and moderation, what are some other ways that people can go about having something entered into a public record without necessarily having it be a letter to the editor of a newspaper, which may or may not get published and is not part of the public record when that happens. Yeah, well, there are oftentimes public boards will have ways that you can enter written comments. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there are also ways that you can register ahead of time and ask to be on the witness list. And of course, you know, the voters have the ultimate final say at the ballot box uh, when we're talking about elected officials. But um, to your point about how do I how do I comment on a specific issue, I think uh, most boards that I've covered have written written comments, and that's a good way to get access. And, uh, and, and reporters, also, yeah. journalists then have access yeah. to that. And also from time to time, you have school board members and other public officials that will have open houses or meet and greets and that sort of thing to, to get a sense as to what's going on in their particular part of the community that they represent so that they can bring those issues to to uh, uh, others and that's one of the things in the discussions of this policy that has been brought to the table as an option of having school board members having office hours like some city council members do let's sit down and talk about these things see if we can work them out before it becomes something commented on you know the last i looked uh cps it has uh there are ways you can reach a school mm-hmm. board member. I believe there were email addresses, yeah. Yeah. maybe even phone numbers. So I really encourage people to do that. I think a lot of times people are kind of intimidated and afraid. And these are people who work for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're being, uh, they're serving the taxpayer. So I think, uh, and most of them are pretty open. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, without hijacking a meeting there are ways you can get your message across okay well that's all the time we have for today thank you for joining us for this last half hour we invite you to follow us on facebook or on twitter our handle there is at views on kbia these are great ways to watch and listen to our program again leave comments questions see what we'll be talking about next week and more thanks to travis mcmillan for directing today's show and kyle felling for handling the audio Tim Pilcher composed that theme music. I'm Amy Simons. We'll see you next week.